0: Hey there, everybody. Welcome to Realty Speak, the podcast where experts share valuable insights, answer questions, and tell some real-world stories that'll get you thinking about how you can fine-tune your real estate investment strategy to build up revenue, realize higher returns, and retain more profit when you sell. I'm your host, Bill Widener, and today on Realty Speak, I am thrilled to be back at the KPMG offices on Park Avenue in Manhattan, New York, sitting with Yessie Shecker and Trudy Shah of KPMG along with the Dean of NYU SPS Shack Institute of Real Estate, Sam Chandon. Bill, thanks so much for having
1: me on the show. Delighted to be here.
2: Thank you so much for doing
3: this podcast with us today. We're very excited to be talking about this important topic. Thanks for having us again. Really sincerely appreciate you coming back and talking to us about this topic.
0: Today, Realty Speak fans, Yessi, Shruti, Sam, and I will transcend the mechanics of real estate in favor of a conversation about a paradigm shift that is taking place all around us gender equity and diversity in the real estate business workplace thank you all so much for joining me today on realty speak yesy you lead kpmg's new york real estate tax practice and Shruti, you are a partner in kpmg's advisory practice you both formed the KPMG Women in Real Estate Steering Committee and authored the 2019 KPMG White Paper, Building the Blueprint for Change, Women in Real Estate. Sam, in addition to your role of NYU Shack Institute Dean and Silverstein Chair, you are also host of the Sirius XM Real Estate Hour and past Chief Economist of Chandon Economics, which you founded and continue to be actively involved. Talking with you earlier, Sam, it's obvious that you are passionate about creating the shifts in perspective that will serve as a catalyst to empower today's female students to be the future women leaders in real estate. Our listeners are waiting in great anticipation. So, without further ado, let's get started. Shruti, Yesi, give us some background on the thought leadership paper, Building the Blueprint for Change, and how each of you came to be part of the KPMG Women in Real Estate Steering Committee.
2: Well, three years ago, both Yessie and I were actively involved in the real estate industry. We serve that industry almost exclusively for KPMG. We just noticed that, you know, women look to other women when they're looking for positions and they, they want to feel like there are people like them at an organization. And we also found that there was a lack of women in the real estate industry. So we thought, wouldn't it be great to connect other senior leaders in the real estate industry that are women with each other in order to help expand our network and also
3: penetrate the real estate industry more broadly? I would add to that too. It it was important to us at the time to bring awareness to the topic for me personally and, and even professionally. I got involved with the advancement of women more generally 15 years ago. It started with me getting to know a partner down when I was in Florida. We formed an organization focusing on the advancement of women on corporate boards. That was 15 years ago. So, when I moved to New York, I co founded the Women's Executive Circle of New York, the nonprofit organization. And just like Shruti mentioned, it was the focus there was not just to broaden it from a relationship perspective in the marketplace and and, and get to know and, and build relationships with women, but really to look at where women were when you looked at the historical trajectory of women on corporate boards. So this was a, sort of a very natural transition. I had spent the last now 20 years in the real estate industry, serving clients, uh, as Shruti mentioned as well too, and so just focusing it and, and really making it industry-specific just, just really rang home to me.
0: So when did you both create the steering committee?
3: Three years ago. We've
2: had several events. Obviously, Sam has been involved in that and has been a great supporter. Our first thought was we wanted to focus on retention, recruitment, and reentry. It was a very, I think, narrow focus, and now we've broadened it somewhat. But I think that was really our initial thought. Wouldn't it be great to get women together to talk about those three topics as they relate to women and how we can make a difference in the real estate industry. And and it's really, like I mentioned, expanded from there to what Jesse was saying, which was like now using that as a catapult to get women on boards and to support women as they are getting more and more experience in the industry and then leaving that in order to sit on board. So our mandate, I think, has just increase because of the demand, quite frankly, that we're seeing across the industry and more and more women in this space. So it's very exciting to see.
0: And Sam, how did you come to meet Shruti and Yessie and get involved? When I moved to New
1: York to take my new role at uh, NYU, a common colleague of ours at KPMG introduced us. And we were very early in the stages of thinking about some of the new programming that we would introduce. Uh, I just arrived talking to faculty, students, alumni. What would our strategic priorities be over the next couple of years? And I think for all of us who are involved in the real estate industry, who are attending conferences, who are engaging with colleagues in the C-suite, you know, on corporate boards. The gender imbalance is so apparent to us that in discussing what our priorities would be, one of the things that was really important for us in leading an academic institution was to say, this is an area where we can make a real difference. We can create uh, opportunities for women students uh, to enter a whole range of fields within real estate. We can help to create opportunities for those students to pair themselves with mentors in the industry. Sometimes with mentors that have been uh, working for just a couple of years and whose uh, experiences would be very uh, relatable and immediate. Sometimes with mentors who have been through a number of business cycles, have uh, tremendous experience in the real estate industry in seeing how the industry has changed over the years. The work we really wanted to do uh, depended upon uh, our being able to engage with and partner with colleagues in industry for whom these issues were also of great importance so that we could create a suite of programs, whether it be events, whether it be the mentorship, uh, whether it be uh, just a forum to facilitate conversation. Our common friend and colleague at KPMG saw an opportunity to connect the three of us, and it's been an amazing experience. Who was that common colleague?
3: Bill Mara. The common thread very often in this industry in New York. Bill, he was on your episode 18 for Qualified Opportunity Zones. Yes, yes. But he connected, Sam and I, um, the three of us had had lunch. Um, We were just rolling out our woman in alternative investment report and we were looking to take that report that was broader, it was alternatives, extract the real estate statistics out of that and create a thought leadership piece on that. And we thought, wouldn't that be a perfect opportunity to create an event around this? And it was it was actually the success of that event and the feedback that we received that when we debriefed on a call, we said, what do we do with this next? And that's what, that's really how we formed the steering committee. And what was interesting quickly on that point is when we started thinking about are women really gonna have time to get together and spend time, you know, taking an agenda forward and, and coming onto a steering committee, we made a very long list. Thought we would need one because not everyone's going to have time for that, and the first eight women that we reached out to were very interested.
0: So immediate participation,
3: immediate engagement. Uh, Sam, where,
0: where where were you at this point in the process? I was one of those eight invitations. <laughs> <laughs> oh,
1: okay, all right. <laughs> uh, the and you know it's been an amazing learning experience for me because I you know I was initially concerned that. Uh, being in the room. Women might feel uh, constrained in having a very open and honest and candid conversation about some of the challenges in the industry, some of the ways in which uh, we can uh, move things forward. And uh, I remember asking Shruti and Yessi, is it okay for me to be here? Is there some part of the conversation that I should excuse myself? And they encouraged me to stay. I'm glad that I did, because I've learned so much. Just spending a lot of my time Uh, in the steering committee meetings, listening to people's experiences, people's thoughts on uh, where the industry is as compared to where we were 10 or 15 years ago. Some of the areas where we really still need to exert a lot of effort to move things forward. I'm really gratified to be able to say that I've been part of it from the beginning.
2: I think initially we thought that these events that we would hold would just be for women. But after discussion, Yessie and I were like, listen, we need men in the audience and men in the room. People report to men. Men report to women. They're, they're an integral part of this. It's not a women-only club. This is actually a dialogue that we need to have across men and women. Yes, this might be focused on women's advancement, but it really has to have be a holistic dialogue.
3: One important thing to note, we made it very clear and we wanted to make sure that this wasn't about complaining about things and making it a very soft discussion. Everything that we did had content around the industry. The focus of this, it was around awareness to what we can do better to retain women in the industry and highlight what they're doing.
1: I'll expand on that. The discussion around what the mandate would be, the kind of conversation we would want to facilitate, it being about creating visibility for some of the most successful people in the industry, was an idea then that resulted not only in the steering committee, but at SHAC, I think really got us excited to pursue what we refer to as our national symposium of women in real estate. So I approached a couple of our board members to say, can we take some of this energy and create a conference? SHAC is known for hosting some of the biggest conferences and longest running conferences in the real estate industry. We were coming up on the 50th anniversary of our Global Capital Markets Conference, wanted to kick off a new tradition, um, and, and this was the area that we really wanted to focus on. But to say that the mandate for that conference would be exactly along the lines of the conversation that we would, had been having at KPMG, that it wasn't so much a discussion around challenges or issues. It was a platform that would highlight and create visibility for a group of extraordinarily successful professionals, and then create opportunities for uh, women at different stages in their career in the real estate industry to pair with one another. We find that there are folks that are very far along in their career, still are excited about the idea of finding a mentor to work with, as well as uh, the folks that may be a little bit earlier in their career or, or still students in the program. So this this very same idea of creating a forum, creating a dialogue, uh, creating community and network, a network uh, of people that can support one another, uh, whether through mentorship that is formal or informal, uh, has really, I think, informed so much of what we've done, uh, both at NYU and with the steering committee.
0: So you all said that you started doing this about three years ago. And of course, two years ago, something happened to me too. It was kind of a great reckoning in terms of how men and women looked at each other and how they behaved with each other. How has that played into all of this? I mean, what happened? You, you You started, you were doing this, it was great. You had created the board, you were going to have the conference, and now all of a sudden this happens. How does that play into your steering committee and what has happened since then with your initiative?
2: I think me too for a few moments, and I'm so appreciative of this, is that the negativity was only around maybe for several months where I think I heard some men saying, well, I'm not comfortable mentoring women now because of this whole movement. But I think it was short-lived. I was so concerned when I heard this from some of my male colleagues that I didn't know what to say. i was I was shocked, um, but they were really concerned about this. But I feel like it died. It was just like how the news cycle is up and down. I feel like it hasn't made a lasting impact to successful men that are that are good people making a difference
3: and helping other women. i don't I don't think it has, yes see. I've had a tremendous and I still have tremendous amount of mentors and sponsors in this organization and externally that are men. In our steering committee conversation, I don't know that it was a huge topic for too long. Yes, there was a period of time that there was a lot of questions and focus
2: on it. I think the conversations I had with my male colleagues, not necessarily in the steering committee, was they were worried about what they should say and do. They were just concerned and they were guarded. Well, maybe that was a good thing.
0: Yeah. It was a good thing that the people were becoming guarded because maybe it got them to think that, gee, I really, I really have to pay attention to what I'm saying, how I'm presenting myself, and because maybe I think it's benign, but maybe it's not.
2: Yeah, I, yeah. I think so. And then, And then I think we just moved on from it
0: that's refreshing that you've seen it demonstrated that the culture has moved on from it and we're actually getting back to what the whole initiative was recruitment retention and re-entry into the workplace and then of course everything else that that is building out of that so for the three of you going back to the beginning you in the steering committee curated an agenda and let's get into the weeds i want to get into the meat and potatoes of this and really understand what has been some of the results that you've experienced? Tell me some stories. Realty Speak listeners love stories.
3: So I can maybe throw out a few different topics, and there's plenty of stories around all of them. But if I start with our agenda that we set out for ourselves for the for just even the first year, we came up with recruiting, retention, and reentry, which is really around the pipeline of women in the industry. We wanted to have men in the conversation, and then it's evolved as Trudy earlier said to women on boards. One of the things we studied in our first report, which came out in our first event, was the notion of investors in the real estate industry, investing with global asset managers, for example, and asking the question around diversity. How diverse is your organization, you, the asset manager? And are you looking when you're making investments, for example, with others? And one example I can give, when we had formed my previous organization, Women's Executive Circle of New York, we were publishing back then a census study and it was being followed by uh, NICERS, unbeknownst to us, uh, NICERS picked up the phone and gave us a call and said, we've been following your report. Are you not publishing it this year? And his point to me, we're a major investor in organizations and corporations. It's very important to us. So for me to look at the report and look at which companies have zero women on boards, one or or less, uh, was a very important. So here was an organization looking very closely at investment dollars they were providing to to other companies and really focused on the diversity of boards.
2: I'm going to talk a little bit about an example I have on reentry. It's it's very personal for me. Um, I, I had worked for a number of years and I took some time off to look after my kids. And I then decided just a few short years later that I wanted to reenter the workforce. And I have to tell you, it was one of the most difficult and challenging things that I had to do. Um, I had this big gap in my resume, and people were not taking me seriously um, in this field, in this industry. And the only way I was able to re-enter the workforce um, at even a level close to what I was at was really the ability to use my network and have other women support me in coming back to the workforce knowing that women who are who are given that chance are going to be so loyal because they've been provided this opportunity other women knew that about women that have been out of work and looking to come back and restart their career so I took that with me when we started talking about the Women in Steering Committee and what our topics would be. Because I think, like myself, there are so many other women who have great talent and great experience and have had a career-changing moment, whatever that might be, because of our other responsibilities, and now are looking to restart that. And that is such a great Population to tap into. And I think that companies and firms, uh, not just in real estate, should look at that population of individuals because let me tell you, they will be loyal, hardworking, and they're extra smart. And I think it's so, it's so negative when I hear that, you know, companies will say, well, you have a gap in your resume. And I think, That was one of the reasons why I thought that topic was so important in our steering committees, because I want to change that viewpoint that people have. It is not a negative. It's a different experience that someone had that brings a different level of experience to your firm. So I think it's a positive and not a negative. And that is the message that I wanted to send.
0: I want to expand on that a little bit. In your experience, Trudy, that you had getting back into the workforce, where did you find the gate? was closed? Was it at the beginning of the process to get through the initial gatekeeper? Was it the next steps of HR? Was it the hiring manager? Where was it that you feel that you were being stopped from moving forward? Or did you get to a place where you were one of the several candidates that might be hired for a specific position, and then maybe you weren't chosen because someone else didn't have that gap in employment?
2: It was right in the front. My resume wasn't even getting looked at because I was a woman. I had some children. There's a gap. That's not an ideal candidate for a demanding position that might require travel. That was an assumption made on someone's part when they reviewed my resume as opposed to somebody else's to say, I don't think that that person is going to be a good fit.
0: What were the steps that you took that changed everything?
2: I realized that I had to call on my on my network. And I never really understood the value of a network before.
0: And because you had a gap in employment, I mean, was your network diminished or had you kept that up during that period of time?
2: It was 100% diminished. And it was embarrassing for me initially to have to reach out to my old network that I had because there had been a gap. I thought that's so selfish of me to now reach out to this woman that I knew that was in a leadership position who I was friends with and I hadn't really talked to her. But you know what, I, I bit the bullet and I did it and I reached out to those people and you know what, they were great. I apologized for having the gap and you know what, they were so helpful and friendly and that was a big turning point for me. To think, you know what, I'd, this is about my career and my future. I can't be embarrassed to reach out. I did not stay connected with them. That was on me because I didn't really understand the value when I was a younger woman. Uh, now I will. Ne- I would never do that again, just being where I am right now and understanding the true value of it. But that was the turning point. And a few people that I knew knew that the quality of my work before and said, "You know what? She's going to be a great asset to our firm. And you know what? Those people, those women are here at this firm and that's why I'm here. I'm here today because those women remembered me.
0: So when you reached out to them and they responded how quickly were you able to re-enter the workforce?
2: Within a few months. All you need is a couple of recommendations." Some smart women that work here and guess what you're back in
0: Wow that's amazing and that was
2: really what happened yeah, that's and it's fantastic and it this is a true story and uh, and I'm a partner at KPMG now That was the turning point if I didn't do that I don't know where I would be and
0: how long ago was that
2: 17 years ago Wow
0: and 17 years ago we didn't have the ease of networking that we do today so no. I would imagine that even today it could be a little easier to retap that network. And I'm sure in those 17 years you've reciprocated over and over again. And
2: that is why I do the things that I do on the steering committee and other organizations. Is because, you know, this is a true story for me. This is near and dear to my heart, and um, I want to pass that information along to other people because it was it was good information for me, and I had to maybe learn it the hard way. And why not just shortcut it for other people?
0: Okay, so we're talking about reentry into the workplace, having been there already, Sam. Aren't students coming out of college with undergraduate degrees or graduate degrees experiencing some of the same thing? And they don't even have that previous network, even if there's not even a gap to go back beyond.
1: Sure. I think, you know, listening to Shruti's example and story is really instructive for me because I've always seen this through the lens of the traditional undergraduate or graduate student. And quite frankly, you know, the difference here is that for that traditional undergraduate or graduate student, the entire infrastructure is in place, all of the support mechanisms to To help you meet employers, to build your network outside of the classroom, all of the co and extracurricular work that we do is really designed to help the student that, as you described, uh, may not have that network because they're coming through undergrad. This may be their first job. Those support systems are in place. I think what we've done over the last couple of years has been to expand upon the general foundations that are there to support students to say, you know, what are the things that we can do to support our women students in particular in leveraging the network of women professionals in the industry? Hearing what Shruti has described has really forced me and others to think a little bit more broadly Beyond the traditional undergraduate and graduate student, that at various points during people's career, they will face different kinds of challenges. And when we look at the real estate industry, what we see is that at different stages or at different levels of the organization, the degree of gender balance can vary pretty significantly, and we have to better understand those dynamics. There are also some areas where we've seen some really exciting developments over the last couple of years. Uh, we were briefly discussing earlier women serving on boards, and some of that because of legislative action in parts of the country. But I think uh, more important than that, really being driven by you know, the, the demands of investors. We have, uh, over the last couple of years, seen a larger number of women appointed to the boards of real estate investment trusts than uh, we've ever seen before. And it's not just, It is, in fact, it is not really about simply making sure that we are being more inclusive for the sake of inclusivity. I think there is a much broader recognition than there has been historically. People being able to bring a diversity of experience and background to the board, to the C-suite, to every level of the organization, helps to inform decision-making. The deal that you're about to uh, undertake, you get a wider range of perspectives. And it also opens up a whole range of deal and investment opportunities that you may not have had access to before. Phil Mara was uh, on your 18th episode discussing opportunity zones. I think we have certainly organizations within the real estate industry that have a strong desire to deploy funds in opportunity zones, but where their most senior team perhaps has an incomplete understanding of what the needs are of the communities that they want to now invest in. That is just one example of how having that diversity of experience and background accrues to the, the range of opportunities that firms have access to. I think on the academic side, you know, as we've built up the range of programs that we offer to support our, our women students and, and connect them with uh, working professionals in the industry, we're also thinking really hard about how it is that you know, we can leverage our unique position in the market and being able to, in particular, bring together folks who may uh, during the day be at competing firms. Uh, but who share sort of you know, a common interest, um, who share uh, a common desire to support uh, other women in the industry. You know, how can we leverage our position, our resources, our platform to then create opportunities to support women who are thinking about reentry? And one of the things about Truthy's story that is uh, most important for me to be considering and, and for others is that we're going to encounter situations where someone might feel like, The quality or level of activity of their network has deteriorated in the couple of years that they've been outside of the workforce. Some folks are going to feel some hesitation in re engaging that network in in the way that Shruti described. That can be daunting. There should never be a a stigma for anyone who's thinking about re entering the workforce after a life event. Are there things that we can do to support folks who otherwise might hesitate uh, to reach out to that person that they had had? you know, that strong relationship, you know, with five years earlier or six years earlier? Because I think there are a lot of women in the industry that, you know, are, as Truthy described, very keen to support other women that are re-entering. How can we help to connect them with uh, with women that uh, are coming back into real estate?
2: I think smart firms are understanding that. And you see more and more women on the boards because they want that diversity of thought. They want that on their investment teams. They want those ideas. So I think if you want to be successful, I think those smart firms are recognizing that and looking outside of their normal network to hire. um, I don't think it's across the board. I think it is hopefully getting there and we're seeing more of it. It's certainly not where we want it to be, but I think they're Smart firms are using it as a business advantage. Yeah, the driver is business advantage. It's not diversity to your point Sam for the sake of being diverse. It's it's capitalizing on a business advantage.
0: I'm glad you bring that up because you're not going to hire people of a specific segment of the population just because you're trying to create diversity in your organization. You also need to get the job done.
2: Yeah, absolutely. For example, if you're a real estate firm who invests a lot in the retail industry, let's say here in New York, and you have, you know, the same type of individual on your teams that are looking to make other investments or divest. Is that really the right answer, given, you know, what is the consistency of retail here in New York? Or should we have a diversity of population because New York is so diverse? And the way people use retail is so different. So doesn't it make sense that your team not only has men and women, but of all all kinds, because that's how New York is. And that's how New York utilizes retail, so to me, if you're a REIT that specializes in retail, it's actually important and imperative for you to have that type of team.
3: I will not forget that conversation at your annual symposium this this past one the lady from Goldman Sachs who ran their urban development business, and it was such a great example. They were making a big investment in an area that was very diverse and. The folks that showed up that day to put this business plan or, or really assess the situation were, we're not. not. we not diverse. Not yeah. a single person. And she she just said she lo- walked in and said, "Are you kidding? This is how we're going to engage with this community and and tell them what they need." That really stuck with me. But it's a, another perfect point.
0: What was the outcome of that?
3: I think she changed up that team.
0: I think she did change up
3: that <laughs> team.
0: <laughs> Quick little break here, Realty Speak fans. We cover so many topics on the show there's plenty of great information and strategies that you can use but sometimes you may need more than that therefore i'm here to personally help you when you have more questions around buying or holding or selling or financing your valuable apartment building real estate every transaction is different and so are the people involved a successful outcome will depend on the execution of proper planning With decades in the industry, in the areas of brokerage, construction, debt capital and appraisal, I can professionally guide you at any point in the cycle of acquisition, your existing portfolio or the sale of your multifamily and multifamily mixed use real estate. Call me. It's just that easy to get the information you need to know when you need to know it now. The number it's nine one seven two three two. 8529. What else can I say? Real estate is in my DNA. And now back to the show. We're talking a lot about organizations and firms and the real estate industry. Let's be a little bit more specific for our listeners. Are we talking about institutional investors? Are we talking about private equity companies? Are we talking about family offices? Let's talk a little bit more about where this agenda has actually worked.
3: I think it's all of them in different ways. I think you've got the investment community, which includes your big mega fund investors, your sovereign wealth funds, your pensions, all looking at making investments in real estate through either direct investments or through asset managers. This is an agenda that they're also driving because they're being asked to or because it's important to them. So I think it's all areas and angles of the industry.
1: I think the clearest articulation around this with the pension funds, and you know that again reflects you know the, the nature of the policyholders you know, whose pensions are they holding, and uh, it's expressing as you know clear mandates uh, or requirements around diversity with an inclusiveness with the GPs that they're investing with.
2: I would agree. There's a mandate. I was talking to some pension fund investors and and she was telling me that there is a clear mandate. She wants to know who is making the decisions with the money that she is
3: allocating to that real estate firm. She wants to know. I think it's also the family offices. And I was having a conversation with a big one here in New York who basically said, and we were talking about, well, why is this conversation coming up? Why is it important? And I mean, she was pretty clear and it made a lot of sense that it was generational. Historically, that wasn't a big focus, but as the new generation takes over these organizations and these family offices, it's, it's more important to them and at the forefront.
1: In the real estate industry, when we're thinking about what kind of properties we want to develop, millennials are a good example of the nature of this change because we sometimes, the discussion of millennials sometimes describes the, the cohort as if it's homogenous, you know, Every millennial has a very particular set of preferences that relates to their wanting to live downtown, close to their favorite amenities, walkability becomes important, Um, you know, the amenities in the building, if it's a residential property, uh, where in fact, uh, millennials are the most diverse demographic in U.S. history and uh, represent, you know, a a much wider range of preferences than I think we commonly acknowledge in some of our our discussion and debate within the real estate industry.
0: So as time goes by and you have people that have been in the industry for quite some time, like myself, for instance, and you're not necessarily in that demographic, what's that demographic's perspective? What are you finding? Because there are people that are very, very experienced in the industry, maybe women, maybe men, maybe culturally different. How is the generational perspective playing out there? I think when
1: we look at the leadership of the industry, uh, when we look at the changes in the boardroom with real estate investment trusts, uh, I'm encouraged by what I'm seeing. And I think that whether it relates to you know, the importance of uh, gender uh, equity in the organization, whether it relates to the way in which we meet the needs of and include LGBTQ Americans uh, in our organizations and in the way we develop and think about the development of properties and introducing them to the market, that we are in a different place as an industry than we were 10 years ago.
0: What about people that are in a different age demographic? You still have people that are probably two generations away from the millennials that are still in the workplace.
2: I think those folks are really smart and they understand that 50% of the workforce in 2025 is going to be under 30. And if you're in the office space, for example, that that is where you invest those individuals are not looking for big offices. They want more collaborative space. So guess what, you as a real estate professional are gonna have to understand that that is your buyer, that is who is looking, um, those are the services that they're looking for.
0: So there's a shift.
3: There's a, There's a big shift. I think so, and if you contrast that to like senior housing and senior living, you—I mean, anyone who is developing real estate or in, in entering that sector, for example, you have to understand, you know, that generation.
2: Senior housing—they're looking for amenities, also. So it's an evolution. Professionals in that in this industry spending money and understanding that, and uh, understanding what that future looks like, is going to be is critical in understanding where they need to make their investments over the next. Five, 10, and 15 years.
1: Right. And I think what you're describing in the shared economy by design, you know, the shared economy is one where you will interact with folks that have different backgrounds, experiences that aren't necessarily going to look like you or make decisions in the same way. Uh, But uh, it's apparent to all of us that the way in which, as you describe, we work, play, live, shop, you know, is evolving and the smart real estate firms are the ones that uh, are adapting to that and and want to set themselves at the cutting edge.
2: Another important element is millennials or younger generation. I think this generation is so much more socially conscious environmentally. They're also looking for amenities regarding environmentally conscious footprint-reducing buildings, whether they live in them or work in them. And as they get older and are buyers of real estate, that's going to be a critical element that developers are going to have to look to understand and make sure that they're at the forefront of. They want to s- spend their money in socially responsible ways. And you're seeing that even with their investing. That's why ESG is, is up. Everyone's talking about how to invest in socially responsible companies and having funds that are socially responsible so that they can cater to a group of individuals that that is so important for they don't want to just invest and make money they want to invest and make money and feel good about it and what's esg environmental social governance and it is a classification of investment that you know pension funds or the individual investor can look to invest in and what that really means is that those particular investments whatever they may be have some social impact meaning they do they do good for the environment or they're they they're organic or or something to that effect right where they're reducing their footprint on this planet so more and more times we are seeing a demand for investments like that and that bleeds into real estate, right? Real estate office space that makes less of a footprint, uses environmental friendly windows, are LEED certified. Qualified opportunity zones, people want to invest in qualified opportunity zones because they feel it's socially responsible to do so.
1: What I'd add on the ESG front, particularly as relates to the sustainability of buildings themselves, is that part of the impetus and part of what's allowed for us to develop momentum over the last couple of years is a repositioning of that conversation away from the specifics of how do you feel about issues like climate change, the importance of sustainability. Those are all important for all of us, but focusing for the investor on the bottom line and how ultimately you know, an energy efficient building is one that's more profitable.
2: That's a very valid point. I mean, it's all about the bottom line. You want to earn returns on your investments.
0: We've talked about the agenda of the steering committee and some of the changes that have taken place. What was it that actually drove the agenda? Did you do a survey?
3: We did. This is the second survey that we've done.
0: When was the first one?
3: The first one was back in 2016, and that one was a broader alternative investments report, and we extracted the real estate report results We just sought the real estate respondents of that report, and we used those results and had our first event. This one that we just published in 2018 was also the same, a woman in alternative investments. It had over 800 women and men that responded to the survey, and we extracted the results that were real estate-specific, and we took the angle of recruitment, retention, and re-entry to write this piece specifically because it really aligned to our agenda for the steering committee. Um, We we thought that'd be interesting to look at the stats specific to each one of those.
0: And the respondents themselves, what do they do?
3: The broader report is made up of hedge funds and real estate funds and private equity funds. The real estate respondents are made up of public and private REITs, fund managers, institutional investors, a bit of a mix.
0: So what were some of the results?
3: So, if you just look at some of the results, and you know, when when it comes to recruiting, you know, sixty nine percent of the funds did not require a diverse slate, and we talked about this earlier as that was a recommendation and, and something that we hear a lot of the advanced organizations who are really looking to make an impact on women, whether it's candidates or retention of women in their organization. But seventy percent uh, do not. That means only thirty percent do.
0: So when you identify something like that, you identify it as something that needs to change.
3: The organizations that are having more success with women candidates and ultimately rec- recruiting women um, actually take an active role in looking for diversity. And maybe Sam, you can touch on you know how NYU plays a role on that too, because we oftentimes even reach out to Sam if we hear about one of our clients who's looking specifically for a female candidate.
0: Where their survey results that leaned in the other direction where organizations were taking a proactive approach?
3: It was more generally slanted to organizations not being proactive about looking for diversity when it comes to recruitment.
0: So the steering committee still has a lot of work ahead of them.
3: We do. And I think one of the things we do well is at least talk about the topic and and bring awareness. And many senior women that we have at our forums and at Sam's annual symposium also really focus and talk about this so i think that you know hearing about it and and the impact that it makes and the difference that it makes is important and yes to answer your question it, there's a long road ahead i guess
2: and i think actionable steps are important that's one of the things that we've talked about in our broader programs that we've uh, put forth which is How, that's great that we talk about it and we can all nod our head and acknowledge that, oh yes, this is a problem, but there are some firms that are doing it really well and hearing from them on how they've actually been proactive, In changing that process, I think it's important for other people in the audience or whoever we're talking to, to hear that it's not going to accidentally happen that you have 50% women and 50% men in your workforce. It's not going to, it's not going to be accidental. You are going to have to make goals and be very proactive and be very methodical in your approach to get there. If that is important to you. And what we're saying is we believe there is a financial impact to you if you decide to go that way. So positive on both ends.
1: At least anecdotally, I think we've seen over the last couple of years, meaningful improvements in this area. So whereas in that initial survey, only a small number of firms indicated that they had a requirement around a diverse slate. We see many more firms today you know, expressing a strong interest in engaging with us in ways that give them opportunities to connect with and meet and develop networks with a diverse range of students, whether it be undergraduate or graduate. So I think that's really positive. There's some self-selection here because I think through our work with KPMG, through the symposium, we also communicate very, very clearly in our industry engagement and in conversations with employers what our values and expectations
0: are. The survey had three priorities, and we've talked about the first one, which is recruitment. What about retention, and reentry.
3: Interesting results on this one, too. If you look at the survey, 90% of the funds that we surveyed were led by men. 85% of them do not ensure women have access to sponsors, although 59% of the funds do have women in investment decision-making roles. 77% of them answered the question that if there are investment committees, 90% of them are represented by men. What we're focused on in this category and some of the results that we were looking at were around programs and initiatives in the organizations to really try to retain women or diverse candidates. It's great to have retention programs. And the question we always have is, is everyone embracing them and are we really being effective with with what we have?
1: And there I'd add, when students are on the job market, they're pretty savvy about this stuff. They are going to hear from lots of firms that are going to communicate the importance of an inclusive and diverse recruitment process, but they're going out there and they're asking the questions to find out what's the culture of the firm, what kind of programs are in place. To Jesse's point, are they programs that really are reflective of the overall culture of the organization? Is this part of the DNA of the firm? And really going one step further becomes important in being able to recruit
2: if you really want to have women in leadership positions and you see the percentages are not great, obviously, to Yessi, to your point, you have to retain them. And how do you retain great women? Um, you lose them in droves, kind of at the 10-year mark, right? And a lot of times you lose them because they've had a life-changing event. I'm going to be very specific. There was an example of a young woman that I knew She took a maternity leave, came back to work after her first child. She was on a meteoric rise at her firm. And when she came back, you know, there was an unconscious bias that she no longer wanted to work late or she didn't want to travel. So she got put on projects and deals that were not the top of the house like she used to be on before, but she was on ones that weren't quite so important And maybe not as relevant as some of the ones that she was working on before. So in her mind, it was like, well, if I'm going to leave my family to do this job, I want it to be relevant where I was before. Like, I still want, I'm still an A-game person, but I'm not treated like one anymore. So she subsequently left that firm and went somewhere else where they valued the fact and they didn't have that unconscious bias. And she made it very clear that yes, she does have a family, but she wants to work on the best deals and she's not scared to travel and she's not scared to put in the hours and she can manage and don't make that decision for her. This is an important story for people out there that maybe have women or men on their teams that maybe their perception is that you know, they've had a life changing event, and they can no longer do the job that they were doing before. Well, instead of making that perception, maybe just ask them and say, what is your objective here? And what is it that you want to do? Instead of, you know, you've had this event, and I don't think you can do it anymore, because maybe you couldn't do it anymore. And that's why you have that viewpoint. That's what we're trying to share when we put out our programs about retention is just give these types of examples so that people in their mind, the next time they're dealing with somebody, they can maybe remember this story and say, you know what, I'm not going to do this. This is an unconscious bias that I have about working mothers or, or men that have elderly parents or whatever it may be. And I'm not going to have that unconscious bias, and I'm just going to ask, and I'm really trying to be open about it. I
1: think both of those points are really important. One, don't make the decision for me. Right. You know, engage okay. with me in conversation. But I have to imagine it must be so frustrating for the person who finds that all of a sudden they're assigned to a parent track. Um, and assumptions are being made about their capacity, ability, willingness to take on that next big project and to you know commit time in the way that others would. I think it's also important for firms uh, to be able to build in, you know, an element of flexibility to accommodate for folks that, you know, do have, you know, families. Your other point about conscious versus unconscious bias, I think is a critically important one as well, because I think every firm, uh, I hope every firm is going to be able to articulate the importance of, you know, diversity and recruitment, hiring, retention, the capacity of that firm to look at its own practices and say, hey, where do we have systems in place uh, that maybe are inconsistent with the goals that we've articulated, and how do we then make adjustments? That becomes really important. And that's where I think we see the next step for a lot of firms out there. Everyone's getting on the right page uh, about the importance of recruiting that diversity of background and experience, but do you actually have, have you addressed some of of the structures that you might have in place that are making it more difficult for folks?
3: One interesting result of the survey was on the the point of unconscious bias was 92% of the respondents did not have that type of training with respect to the people that are making key decisions. And that was unfortunate to see and a very important topic as we talked about.
0: And the larger the organization, the greater amount of people that are in that hierarchy. And so the leaders at the top, making sure that they understand what the people that are reporting to them and reporting to the people beyond them that those people do have this training and that they do understand that they shouldn't have either a conscious or an unconscious bias about how somebody performs. And that it's really more about a meritocracy than anything else. And we're finding we are a global community now because of the ability to communicate with each other uh, that we didn't have, you know, 20, 30 years ago. People are beginning to become a little bit more conscious It's not just about how I see things. It's about how everybody sees things. And if we allow ourselves to listen to the other person's perspective, at the end of the day, we probably create a better organization because there's so much more thought leadership into the input that goes into making the decisions. It raises an interesting point
1: about the globalization of the market.
3: Every large institutional or investor or asset manager is investing globally.
1: 40% of our students are coming from abroad. Many want to remain in the United States for a period of time. Many are very eager to take jobs and responsibilities in other parts of the world. We do see tremendous variation in cultural norms, and the extent to which firms are focusing on this issue as we look around the world.
0: So far, so good, and we could really go on forever, but we're going to wind up our chat today, and I have a final question. Yessie, Shruti, Sam, if you woke up tomorrow and something in your particular sector of the real estate space had changed forever, what do you wish that would be? Yessie,
3: To me, it's that we don't have to have a discussion around diversity and that everyone is just focused on the real estate industry and, and what they're passionate about. Shruti? My wish is that when I walk into a boardroom across the U.S.,
2: that 50% of the composition of that boardroom is women and 50% is men. And that would mean that recruitment, retention, and re-entry were successful.
1: Sam? I'll second Shruti and Yesi's comments. I think the end goal here for all of us is that we don't need to have an active conversation about how we make the organizations, the firms, our industry more diverse.
0: Well, Sam, Shruti, Yesi, that was superb. Exceptional. And I have a feeling you are going to be more popular than you already are. So please share how Realty Speak listeners may contact you. Yessie,
3: To contact me directly, you may email me. Uh, my email address is yscheker at kpmd.com. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Yasenia Shekhar. Shruti? I can be reached by email,
2: skshah at kpmg.com. And similar to Yessie, I'm on LinkedIn.
1: Sam? Like Yessi and Trudy, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can also find me on Twitter and at my website, samchandon.com.
0: Realty Speak listeners, I'll put all that in the show notes. So if you didn't have a chance to jot it down, don't worry about it. It'll be there. Well, I want to thank all of you for being here today.
1: Bill, thanks so much for hosting us for this important conversation.
2: Thanks. I really enjoyed being
3: part of this. This was so much fun. Bill, thank you so much for having us today. Really enjoyed talking with you, Sam, as always, and Trudy as well.
0: Well, there you have it. Everyone, thank you for listening. I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Realty Speak, the podcast. Please subscribe. You can do so on the website. Just go to the podcast page on the website, and there is an opt-in option on the top of the page. Or search Realty Speak on your favorite podcast app. Like Podcast Republic, my fave on Android devices or Apple Podcast for an iPhone. Find it, open it, hit subscribe, and you're in. And please help Realty Speak grow by sharing the show with others. From the website player, just click share and choose your preferred social media platform. And of course, if you'd like to talk about purchasing, selling, or financing investment real estate, access past episodes, or just chat, You can contact me directly via the website at BillWidener.com. That's B-I-L-L-W-E-I-D-N-E-R.com. And remember, it's not about us, but how we help you make the bottom line rise. Until next time.